Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. It's an interesting thing about the Jewish people. We are always complaining about something. The uh, Even when good times happen, we always seem to find something in it that makes us complain. I don't know why. It seems to be something that's ingrained in our personalities. At any rate, the latest complaint is something which... Uh, was, the attention was called to it by uh, Rabbi Stuart Weiss, and I found it very interesting, and I want to share it with the listeners. The latest complaint, really, really the very, very latest, is that we have a new government in Israel, and it's going to be uh, impossible to stay in office, and it's going to do all kinds of terrible things. We see this in all the headlines in the papers and all the news. Everybody's predicting terrible things. All kinds of doomsday scenarios are being predicted on radio and television and newspapers. Uh, some are complaining that because there are religious parties, they're going to force everybody to be a Sabbath observer and they're going to have to keep uh, kosher and all these things. And, uh, they also claim that uh, that the, so many people will be exempt from the army that we won't be able to defend ourselves. All kind of the whole spectrum. A lot of talk about a lot of disgruntled people in Israel leaving the country. I even saw something on the internet inviting people to Israelis to come and join the Jewish community in Berlin. So. Uh, it's sort of a reverse aliyah, which is the emigration of Israeli Jews to other lands instead of immigration of Jews to Israel. And uh, if they go to other lands, they can build new communities. <clears throat> now, it is true, obviously, that a large part of the population is highly dissatisfied with the new coalition. And we have to vigilantly, vigilantly, vigilantly protect our individual liberties and the welfare of our economy. We have to make sure our army is strong and all our national institutions are all our national institutions are strong. We cannot have a nation where all men and women are created equal, but some are more equal than others. If there is excessive favoritism toward one segment of the country over others, that will certainly breed widespread disenchantment, protest, and even civil disobedience. That's something we have to be worried about. Now, Israelis are very tough when it comes to their rights, and uh, they'll rise up in indignation, righteous indignation, if they feel that they're not being treat, treated fairly. But the idea of getting up and leaving that these Jewish communities outside of Israel advertising that Israelis should come there, that is absolutely a no-no. First of all, where would Israelis go? Would they go to America? The United States is experiencing now 
a wave of anti-Semitism not seen since the 1930s. According to the New York Police Department officials, the, the, the share of hate, hate crimes in New York is directed against Jews and very little is being done to stop it. Despite the claims of various elected officials, it's rare that perpetrators of attacks upon Jews are arrested. I'm talking only about New York. It's true all over. It's primarily in Newark. And even if they pick up these people who do anti-Semitic actions, they're generally set free without bail, and invariably they avoid prosecution. Now, what's happening on the American college campuses? There's violent anti-Semitism. Now, what it is, it's masquerading as anti-Zionism, as if there's a difference. And what happened is the Jewish students are either afraid, they're afraid to wear their skull caps, they're afraid to stand out as Jews. On the other hand, there are some Jews who actually are drawn into the enemy camp and they turn against Israel, which is really terrible. So the when when these students are brainwashed into believing in Israel are the root of all evil, they'll graduate into be the leaders of their respective communities with the belief there is something wrong with the state of Israel. When the state of Israel came into being back in 1948, it was uh, it was supported by just about every single element of the American Jewish community. Keep in mind that at that time, uh, a significant portion of the American Jewish community was either survivors of the Holocaust or children of people who had uh, immigrated to the United States to get away from anti-Semitism in, uh, in Eastern Europe in particular, and so when the Jewish state came into being, there was an overwhelming support of the Jewish community. That is not now true anymore. There are efforts, good or strong efforts, of pro-Israel groups. There's one called Stand With Us, for example. And what they do is they try to counter the very heavily funded pro-Palestinian activists, particularly on the campuses. It's a steep battle that'll become more, more difficult when the, the inevitable next war occurs here in Israel. The, the next war is simply a, a question of time. So what will happen? Will the Israelis who are disenchanted go to Europe? Would they go to France? In France, perhaps, where until recently, every Jewish institution in, in France has machine gun toting soldiers guarding their entrances, and synagogue goers in France had to show proof of identity to get in. I had the same thing happen to me several years ago. Uh, on the Sabbath, I had to go prove my identity to get into a synagogue in South Africa. So anti-Semitism is spiking all over, including Great Britain. And uh, if, the, the, if, if the Jews would like to go to Germany, 
Do you really want to pull up roots and replant in the, in the nation that created Nazism? So obviously, we here in Israel cannot and should not overreact. We have to be calm and adopt what's called the long view. We have faced many crises before, much worse than the situation now, and we overcame them. The problem now is it's a crisis because a large part of the population does not accept this government. And this government hasn't done anything yet, really. So they, they were, there's this terrible fear of a center to right-wing government. And this fear is being, is being amplified by the media. The, uh, if we look back in our history, look back, for example, to 1948, when nobody thought Israel had a chance in the United States, President Truman recognized Israel, but prevented arms from coming to Israel. Arms had to be smuggled. And uh, we won our independence. By the way, in 1967, when, when the Arabs were threatening to destroy Israel, at parks were actually being converted into possible graveyards. I know people who told me this, they'd seen it themselves. Well, the, particularly the Egyptians were claiming they were going to destroy Israel in 1967. They started digging uh, burial grounds all over Israel. Thank God they didn't have to be used. The victory was won in less than a week. Israel has a short history, but it's a very, it's an active history. There have been periods of hyperinflation. There are waves of terrorism. And there's the threat of a nuclear attack right now. But in general, we never panic. The, if uh, I'm recording this program uh, several days before it's going to be broadcast. And I just, uh, the last Shabbat, the last weekend, uh, we were invited out. We had friends to our house. Everything was extremely peaceful. We, even though we are aware of what's happening on our borders. We are aware of what they're saying in Iran about destroying us. We, we, we live our lives normally, as normal as possible. We don't panic. We face the adversity and we persevere. And no matter what happens, we shall do so again. We don't, dis I don't think that the rise of the state of Israel in 1948, almost after 2,000 years, and to bring millions of Jews here and to build this nation, we don't want to see it implode before our very eyes. The, uh, the Jewish fable, uh, I read this in an article by uh, Rabbi Weiss. It's an old story. I know it myself. A Jewish fable tells of a king who was determined that his dog would learn to talk. So he gathered his wise men together and said, whoever could not teach the dog to talk would be executed. One by one, the wise men shrugged their shoulders and they told this king that his request was impossible. No use in even trying. And so they, the king assassinated them because they couldn't 
even begin to try to teach the dog to talk. When the the, the, so the king called a rabbi, and the rabbi surprised everyone when he told the king that he could indeed teach the royal dog to speak. But, said the rabbi, it's not something that could easily be done. It would take, he'd have to visit the dog on a daily basis, and it would take five years to accomplish the ability of the dog to speak. So the, the king said, okay, and he gave the rabbi full access to the palace, and he gave him five years to teach his dog how to speak. So the followers of the rabbi said to him, how can you possibly teach a dog to speak? And the rabbi simply smiled and said, in five years, a lot could happen. The king could die, the dog could die, or perhaps God will perform a miracle and will indeed succeed in teaching the dog to talk. But during, in the meantime, we can all live our lives. We can celebrate holidays and happy occasions. In the end, it will all work out. It, but we have to take life as it comes. For when there is life, there is hope. So we, a lot of people here don't like our new government, but a lot can happen in the months and the years ahead. There's a good possibility that a lot of the uh, posturing that the politicians did before the uh, election will not come to be. Um, years ago, you know, uh, I forget, there was one, a particular politician here in Israel, was the, they asked him uh, why he changed some of his policies after he was elected to office. And he said, when I got into office, I saw, I became aware of a lot of information I didn't know before, and I saw things differently. Incidentally, that's the bottom line, really, on campaign promises. Somebody campaigning for office can, comp can give all kind of uh, promises, but you, when you get into office, you're under the limitations of what's happening around you, and many of your promises simply can't be kept, not because you don't want to keep them, but the situation does not allow you to keep them. So we have a new government, and a lot can happen in the months and the years ahead. The, it could well be that this new coalition, which is, which is to the right of center, and which is more religious than previously, it may prove to be successful and fair and may perform effectively. And that would be a wonderful thing. They may face a crisis they can't overcome. That could happen. They could overstep their bounds and the government will fall. That's the interesting thing about the, the, uh, the governmental system here in Israel. But when a, a government is voting into office, theoretically it has four years. Very few Israeli governments last four years. We have a new government, and we have to give that new government a chance. It's important for us in Israel, and it is important for Jews all around the world. It, the and, and by the way, in this new situation, 
it imposes a very important role on the media. The media reports and interprets developments in Israel. And at the same time, they have the media must report to Israel what is going on in outside communities. There's a two-way relationship between Israel and the Jewish diaspora. The more the Israelis know about the Jews living outside of Israel, and the more the Jews outside of Israel know about Israel, the better it is. There's a symbiotic relationship between Israel and global Jewry, and it's an integral part of our joint Jewish identity, and we are really one big community. It's the ink with which we write our story and our history. We have to find a, an inclusive language to run the Jewish world, to remain open and welcome to all viewpoints. The journalist must encourage greater understanding. Amos Oz, the Israeli author, wrote that uh, democracy in the world, many parts of the world, is undergoing a very deep crisis. Politics is becoming a branch of the entertainment industry. People vote not for the best leader, but for the most amusing and entertaining candidate. That is not a unique, uniquely Israeli phenomenon, and it's not a Jewish one either. But we have to be serious about who we elect. The truth of the matter is, one of the problems here in Israel is you can't vote for an individual. You have to vote for a party, a party list. There are 120 seats in the Knesset, and you were presented with a number of lists, and no one gets 120 seats, of course. So parties get numbers of seats, they join together, and they form a coalition. It's incumbent, I think, about for Israeli voters to look at the first 10 names on every list and find out what they can about the character and the background and the accomplishments of those people because they're going to have to buy them in a group. You vote once and you get 120 names. So what it is incumbent upon the Israeli voter to be intelligent and knowledgeable of who he's voting for. That's a major problem, obviously, in any democracy. So you have to keep in mind, for example, the elections in Israel weren't about the law of return or conversion or prayer at the Western Wall. The elections focused on homeland security, the cost of living, and national and international politics. 
The relation with the diaspora is not the main issue, but it should indeed be an issue. We have to really keep in mind Jewish communities outside of Israel, even when we vote for a party here. We want to make sure that our brothers and sisters in diaspora should be able to rally behind us and we can support them. That's the bottom line. When you vote in Israel, it's not just for a party, and it's not just for a government. It's for a group that's going to maintain a relation with those Jews who do not live here in Israel. It's a heavy responsibility upon the voter, and one that we have to take seriously. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. There is a very serious debate taking place now concerning the government's desire to reform Israel's legal system. The reform was set out by Justice Minister Yariv Levin, and there are a lot of people who take uh, exception to his reform and the country is now in an overheated state about these reforms. Uh, last Saturday night, there were demonstrations, huge demonstrations in Tel Aviv, in Haifa, and in Jerusalem against these reforms. So I want to say a few words about it as I understand it to give the listeners uh, a chance to uh, understand the background of all this that's happening in Israel today. The issue of changing the nature of the courts is probably the hottest issue that I can remember in many, many years. And uh, as I said, there are people taking to the streets about it. Now, the reform of Israel's legal system, as I said, was is being suggested or acted upon by the government uh, at the request of the Justice Minister, Yair Levin. There are those who believe that it's reasonable and necessary, and what it will do is properly realign the balance of power between Israel's judiciary, legislature, and government. Right now, the courts, the judiciary, has a tremendous amount of power, more than exists in judiciaries in most countries. Now, the reform of the Israeli legal system has been made necessary by the fact that the Supreme Court is politicized. There is an imperious attorney general and a legal clique in every government ministry that holds a stranglehold on policy making at the expense of lawmakers in the Knesset and in the government. They have fashioned a system whereby they replicate themselves with impunity and occupy every central intersection of policymaking. New judges are chosen by a committee in which three members of the committee, I believe the committee has nine members, three members of the committee 
are Supreme Court justices. So in a sense, they replicate themselves. They, they call themselves the guardians of the gates of democracy, but it's simply not true. They are much too powerful, and they've upset Israeli democracy by usurping powers to themselves never intended by the founders of the state of Israel. They have power that extends far beyond those held by any legal system in any other democracy. The, incidentally, most of their decision-making is to the progressive side of any issue. It makes it impossible for the right and the center-right to govern effectively, and this right and the center-right is where most Israelis are. This was shown in the last election. So I do not believe that Justice Minister Levin's proposal threaten Israeli democracy. It is sensible to change the way justices are selected and circumscribe the ability of judges to strike down Knesset legislation as they have been doing. Take, for example, in the United States, if a president recommends somebody for the Supreme Court or for any federal court, they have to be approved by the Senate. And no such system exists here in Israel. The new judges are selected by a committee of which the judges of the Supreme Court have an overwhelming majority in the committee. The, this, uh, this was set by the former Supreme Court president named Aharon Barak about 25 years ago and has been perpetuated ever since through his hand-picked successors in Israel today. Every matter, it turns out, is subject to the personal prejudices and individual inclinations of the members of the highest bench who consider themselves to be enlightened. They often rule according to their own scale of propriety without really basing their decisions so much on law as simply on their opinion. That the the unilateral the Barack who started this, Justice Barack, unilaterally decided any person has standing before the court on any subject and everything is subject to the courts. Everything is justiciable, meaning that everything from tax to defense policy policy is subject to the scrutiny of the High Court of Justice. This court has developed a series of concepts, very pliant concepts, with which to carry out its self-declared judicial revolution. They use a term called reasonableness, which runs like a virus through the High Court's decisions over the past two decades. The, what is reasonableness? They, they say a law, can, a law can go on to the, or cannot go on to the books because it's not reasonable. What is reasonable? 
What is reasonableness? It's authoritarian jargon that allows the high court justices to elastically apply their own sensibilities to socially re-engineer Israeli society in the image of what they would like. They also have a term called substantive democracy. It's a a term that the court concocted, which means that the court takes upon itself a made-up responsibility to set substantive norms and standards of decency for public life and apply broad interpretation of the law to fit its own perception of values and balance inequality. Even if the law books don't contain any such terms or prescriptions, given the current makeup of the court, decisions that employ such infinitely flexible principles like reasonableness are invariably skewed towards the progressive side of the political spectrum. In recent years, the court has ruled with liberal fist on the allocation of Jewish National Fund land, Palestinian residency rights in Israel, the operation of Palestinian Authority headquarters in Jerusalem, rights of foreign converts to citizenship, Haredi draft deferments, deferments, stipends to yeshiva students, commerce on Shabbat, and so much more. There was little hardcore law involved in those cases. That is what the problem is. You could guess the court's decision in advance simply by looking at the composition of the panel of justices who made the decision. The more progressive the panel, the more drawn out of thin air sermonizing there was likely to be in the decision. In other words, essentially, the courts made political and values decisions camouflaged as law. For example, the high court ruled it is unreasonable to compromise and close a street in Jerusalem, Bar Ilan Street, for several hours on Shabbos, even though a public committee of prominent religious and secular Jews, which was far more representative of Israel's society than the court, had found otherwise. They You have to realize Bar Ilan Street is an, runs through an extremely uh, right-wing religious neighborhood, and they don't want uh, traffic there. It disturbs their Shabbat. And indeed, when there is traffic there, often, unfortunately, the crowds take issue with it and throw stones and things, things like that, which, of course, are wrong in and of themselves. So the idea was to close Bar Ilan Street and so this kind of thing wouldn't happen. But the court found differently. It found it, the court found it unreasonable that religious Jews, for example, were to allow to pray on the Temple Mount because this would disturb the Arabs and require a massive police presence. On the other hand, the court found it reasonable to allow a group called the Women of the War to pray in a manner offensive to most worshippers at the Western Wall, despite the disturbance involved 
and the massive political presence required to make this feasible for women to pray. Now, uh, one example, actually, I remember many years ago, and it really disturbed me, the editor of uh, the uh, Marib newspaper was a gentleman named Shmuel Schnitzer, passed away a few years ago, who wrote almost daily articles that really made a lot of sense uh, describing uh, comments on Jewish life. And he was really a distinguished person, and the state had decided to give him the Israel Prize. And the court ruled that he can't get it. Why? Because he wrote one offensive column over the course of a 30-year career in journalism. On the other hand, they gave a leader of the Merit's party named Shalamet Aloni, gave her the Israel, allowed her to get the Israel Prize despite a 30-year career that specialized in attacking and offending the religious public. Also, the High Court struck down Knesset legislation relating to the illegal immigration of migrant African workers, and it did this three times, even though the Knesset passed revised laws with large majorities each time. The court simply cited that it knew better than the parliamentarians what was reasonable. The word reasonable has been used over and over again by the Supreme Court. The question is reasonable to whom? It's not based on law, it's based on their opinion of what's reasonable. So, for example, what would happen now would a decision by the government to extend Israeli law to all the settlements in Judea and Samaria be considered reasonable? How about the opposite decision to dismantle all the settlements or a cabinet decision to cut off relations with the United States or to bomb Iran? Which of these decisions would be reasonable and which not? The high court justices will decide, not the electorate. And that is the problem. The high court, which reproduces itself, it chooses its own members, has had tremendous uneven power in, the, in, the, in Israel. So the, uh, it's not just the high court, by the way. The Attorney General and an army of legal commanders in every government ministry have fallen into the habit of overriding value judgments passed into law by the democratically elected representatives of the Israeli public in the Knesset and replacing them what they consider to be reasonable. A case in point, by the way, is regarding terrorists. In 2018, the Knesset passed a law allowing the Interior Minister to revoke the citizenship or the permanent residency status of convicted terrorists and their social benefits, too. They wouldn't get them. In other words, Israeli Arab terrorists, Israeli citizens Arab terrorists, uh, would have their citizenship revoked. But 
the Attorney General decided to gut the law of his intent by forcing the Interior Minister to grant Arab murderers an alternative status as temporary residents. This status gives the terrorists full benefits, such as unemployment insurance, child support, disability insurance, and social security payments when they get out of prison. Of course, this is the exact opposite of what the Knesset intended. So, the this this change taking someone to power from the Supreme Court is being uh, proposed by the Justice Minister Yariv Levin. His uh, legislation will place limits on such interventionism by judges and attorney generals. It will allow the Supreme Court to override Knesset legislation only when sitting with a full bench and with a large majority of justices. It will dissuade the court from putting down legislation with the argument of unreasonableness. Unreasonableness is the word used court over and over again, and it really nobody really knows what reasonableness or unreasonableness nearly means. They use it, in other words, if they find something considered to be unreasonable, they make that the definition. So the... Uh, the the, uh, the 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 justices can decide on their own what Knesset legislation should have meant instead of what a legislature's actually intend, intended. So it will redefine this new law. It will it redefine the role of the attorney general and the associates as advisors to the government, not as judges, juries, and executioner all rolled into one. And most importantly of all, this suggestions by the minister Yariv Levin will give back to Israel's elected representatives the majority control of the committee that selects Supreme Court justices and force open confirmation hearings in the Knesset, just as happens in the United States. Now, People in the streets are yelling that this is the end of democracy. This is not the end of democracy. Rather, it is a long overfix to Israeli democracy. It behooves opposition parliamentarians to relate to these proposals with the serious attention they deserve. Israeli parliamentarians ought to debate and negotiate the boundaries of legal reform instead of climbing up the ramparts with ominous threats and intemperate sloganeering. There is no doubt that you have, you must have a strong Supreme Court. But if it has too much power, as it does now, and it is self-selected, then you have a small group of judges who, fight, who, who can er, overturn law passed by the Knesset. Of course, we know that not, not all laws passed by Knesset or by any Congress are reasonable, and people go to the court to defend themselves against some laws, and some laws are indeed overturned. But there has to be a balance. 
the fact that the Supreme Court in Israel is self-perpetuating. It, it, it controls essentially how new members of the court are chosen. And of course, they chose people to, that agree with them. So this is going on for over 20 years. And the court has accepted upon itself much more power than occurs in other democratic countries. And what the interior, the Justice Minister of Levin is trying to do is not to totally dissemble the court, it's simply trying to get more balance so that the court should not have as much power as it has now. I personally, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, I think it's reasonable but if you read the headlines and the news that's coming out of Israel in the next coming weeks, you're going to see there's a lot of, of people taking issue with this decision. I just want to give an idea, some background of what it's about. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to speak a little bit about what's happening uh, on the Temple Mount here in Jerusalem. Uh, several weeks ago, Israel's new right-wing national security minister named Itamar Ben-Gvir went up to the Temple Mount quietly. He was there for 13 minutes, very peaceful visit. And his visit was described by Arab states as storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque courtyard. This was a false accusation that the visit was an attempt to change the status quo and the general outrage directed toward the incident ignores the fact that Jews have a right to visit the Temple Mount according to the agreement between Israel and Jordan following the Six-Day War back in 1967. I myself have visited there several times. Israel had gained control of the Temple Mount, but the leaders of our country chose to preserve the status quo regarding Al-Aqsa, thus giving custodianship responsibilities for administration and religious arrangements to the Jordan while retaining responsibility for security and public order. Now, many people now regard this concession by the Israeli government, which was offered in the hope of alleviating the conflict, is now being regarded by many people as a bad mistake. Jews are only allowed to visit the Temple Mount at specified times, and they have to take a predetermined route. They must be accompanied by security. Jews are prohibited from praying at the site considered the center of Judaism. These uh, guards watch them to make sure that the Jews' lips are not moving. Now, these restrictions are not only absurd, but highlight the fact that an outdated discriminatory system is being imposed on Jews in a way that can only be described as anti-Semitic. 
There's a gentleman named Alan Baker. He's director of the Institute for Contemporary Affairs at the Jerusalem Center, and he's the head of an organization called the Global Law Forum. Now he says, and I quote, the status quo that perpetuates an ancient and an outdated social structure that no longer exists, that practices religious discrimination and denies or restricts rights of worship is blatantly incompatible with accepted international norms and concepts of equality, human rights, freedom of religion and worship, interreligious and intercultural dialogue, tolerance, understanding, and cooperation. In other words, all of these things are contradicted by limiting the time that Jews and the areas where Jews can visit the Temple Mount. In addition, preventing Jews from visiting and praying at the most holy site in Judaism is the direct violation of, the of their indigenous rights under the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. The Jews are undeniably the indigenous people of Jerusalem, which is a claim supported by historical, archaeological, and genetic evidence. Jews clearly fulfilled the criteria of indigenous people according to the United Nations definition, which is self-identification, historical continuity with pre-colonial and or pre-settler societies, strong links to territories and surrounding natural resources and distinct social, economic, or political systems, language, culture, and beliefs resolved to maintain and reproduce ancestral environments and systems as distinct communities. Now, that I realize that's a mouthful, but that is a definition under the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. All these roots, people who have roots in a certain area, are an indigenous people. <coughs> Both Solomon's Temple, the first temple, was destroyed by Babylonian colonizers in 586 before the common area. The second temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 of the common era. They stood on this very same site, which is about a mile away from where I'm making this broadcast in my living room. This is the holiest site in Judaism. It's one of the few holy sites in Judaism. It is here, according to Jewish tradition, that God collected dust to create Adam, and according to the Hebrew scriptures, Abraham offered his son Isaac to God in an act of obedience. It's in the book of Genesis. He brought, uh, Abraham brought his son Isaac up to sacrifice him. He didn't. That's a whole story in the Bible. But this is the place where we believe this incident occurred. Now, when Muslims conquered Jerusalem in the 7th century, their holy places were built on top 
of the destroyed Jewish temples, which is a colonizing act to erase the history of the Jews. In recent decades, the Palestinian leadership has somewhat carelessly but successfully constructed a narrative that denies the Jewish historical connection to our own homeland. Not content with the cultural appropriation of Jewish history, they've taken a further step in refashioning themselves, the Palestinians, as being the really indigenous people of the land, which is in contradiction to all historical evidence. The restrictions imposed on Jews visiting their holy sites are vi violations of Articles of the United States Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. The, these rights of indigenous people are, are in the United Nations Declaration. They have Articles 2, 8, 11, 12, and 25 of this UN Declaration that gives people rights to areas that are indigenous to them. These articles assert the right of indigenous people to be free from any kind of discrimination in the exercise of their rights in particular, that based on their indigenous orange identity, the right to practice and revitalize their cultural traditions and customs, the right to maintain, protect, and access in privacy to their religious and cultural sites the right to maintain and strengthen their distinctive spiritual relationship with their traditionally owned or otherwise occupied and used lands, territories, and redress or any action which has the aim or effect of depriving them of their integrity as distinct peoples or that their cultural values and ethnic identities. Now again, that's another mouthful. But it's out of a UN document that essentially says an indigenous people has rights in those areas that belonged to them previously. If the restrictions imposed on Jewish people were directed towards any other group, whether it be Muslims praying at Mecca or Catholics praying at the Vatican or uh, or all kind of people praying in their sacred places, there would be an outcry. Yet for some reason, the world has no compunction in restricting the religious and cultural practices of one particular people. These people are the Jews, the only ones where the world makes an exception. And I think this can also be defined as anti-Semitism. That's what it really is. Everyone has rights to their original places where they lived, and the Jews are the only ones who don't. Now, I want to change the subject for a moment. Uh, what I just said up till now in this portion of the program it has to do with something that has to be repeated over and over again, that we have rights on the Temple Mount. That's why I brought it up this time. Now I want to change the subject uh, quite a bit. I want to talk about what's happening now with a new government in Israel, and it's going to make some changes uh, because the new justice minister, a man named Yariv Levin, 
introduced a whole set of legal reforms, which if implemented in full, without any modification or checks and balances, may lead, according to the opposition, to the destruction of Israel's liberal democracy. Uh, last uh, two weeks ago on uh, Saturday, uh, Friday, Saturday night, there was a huge demonstration in Tel Aviv, also in Jerusalem, and also in um, Haifa, which I think I mentioned previously, against these changes that the justice minister wants to do. The official position of the government is that reforms um, uh, in the form of laws and amendments are all designed to deal with the problem of governability, which all the recent Likud-led governments have faced. The, uh, the, the, the rationale has deep conservative ideological re uh, roots. According to the government, the existing legal system is responsible for the problem of governability, primarily because the legal advisors in the ministries are inclined to place legal spokes in the wheels of the minister's policy plans. See, it's interesting. The ministries, in every ministry in the government, there is a, uh, a legal advisor. But the legal advisor essentially is not appointed by the minister himself. He's subservient to the attorney general, not to the ministers who head the ministries of which they serve. So they, they're essentially independent, and they can um, legally try to stop something that the minister is trying to do. So rather than help them get their plans through, so they do just the opposite, and because the and because the courts are not wary of declaring laws or articles passed by the Knesset as being unconstitutional, even though Israel does not have a formal constitution, that's where the problem is. At the moment, the government and the Knesset have no effective way to counteract the court's decisions. In other words, over the last twenty-five years. I'm trying to I'm trying to simplify simplify the problem. Over the last 25 years, the court in Israel have taken upon themselves responsibilities and uh, and authority that do not appear in courts in other countries. Uh, it's the Supreme Court in the United States, for example, doesn't have the rights to comment on laws the way that the uh, Supreme Court in Israel does. The, the reason for these, this is the government says has to do with the makeup of the courts and the identity of the legal advisors, resulting from the fact that even though the center-left has lost its uh, per, uh, political predominance in the country, and the center-right is now in office, It's the center-left still maintains its predominance in the universities, Israel's cultural institutions, and most importantly, in the legal system. So what's happening is, in order to redress the situation in the legal system, 
the new government seeks to bring about a change in the makeup of the courts by introducing major changes in how judges are selected and how legal advisors are appointed by giving essentially the politicians in the executive branch a major role in these processes. Now, the opposition rejects these new proposals, claiming they are designed to destroy Israel's liberal democracy and that everything should be done to prevent their being adopted. That is why they have these large demonstrations. The Essentially, what's happening is that the, uh, the, those who are not in the government uh, are, are replaced by people in the streets who are, uh, who are uh, demonstrating against the government. In other words, the minority in the Knesset is now almost represented by the people in the streets who are opposed to what the government is doing. Since the government has a very solid majority in the Knesset, the government is made up parties that have 65 seats in the Knesset, and that's considered uh, really a, a healthy majority in the Knesset of 120 seats. So uh, the, the government has a, a majority of five seats. There's no likelihood that the opposition will manage to defeat the government's bills or introduce any major amendments to them, though it can certainly use obstruction and delay tactics in the course of the process and encourage people to go into the streets and protest against the government. As a matter of fact, that's what the opposition has done. It's chosen to go to the streets and support statements by leaders of the legal system and powerful groups in the population, like retired army generals, concerning the dangers inherent as they believe in the proposed changes. Now, the risk involved in this activity is that since the public seems pretty set in its support or opposition to the proposed changes, all this activity might backfire. The, um, it, 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 there's a problem here. The, uh, the, the, I'm not sure whether all these massive demonstrations in Tel Aviv and other cities will have any positive effect on the government, whether or not order will be kept in them, and whether or not the police will use excessive force to disperse them if order isn't kept. The, uh, the, it's interesting that the people, the opposition to the government now is not the, the, those members of the Knesset who are not in the government, who are in the opposition, but the opposition to the government now is in the streets, in these large demonstrations. So the question is, what kind of head-on clash will happen? Most members of the opposition believe that the Prime Minister, Netanyahu, supports Levin's policy because of considerations that are very personal. He has his own trial coming up. Others choose to say that Netanyahu's, Netanyahu's past support for keeping the Supreme Court and the whole legal system strong, uh, and something he's made many statements in the past, 
is still what he believes deep down in his heart. In other words, we're not quite sure what the prime minister believes about these changes that are going to be made in the legal system. Now, there are those who believe and hope that the current buildup could end in talks and compromise, which would enable the adoption of much more moderate reforms in the system, which both sides will be able to live with, and which would ward off the most extreme dangers to our democracy here. The, they base their optimism on the fact most members of the opposition admit there are certain faults in the legal system now, and if the two sides will sit down together in good faith, a compromise can be reached on most issues. Now, the reason I brought this up is because I'm sure the listeners will see a lot of headlines and hear a lot of news reports in coming weeks about this struggle about changing the uh, the court system here in Israel. So what I tried to do is to give you some background on why this is happening. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. In this portion of the program, I want to touch upon several items that are under the headlines, but I think they were of importance. We are used to seeing the results of polls showing that despite the difficulties of living here in Israel, Israelis are by and large happy with their lives. Now, there's a lot to be said about living here, but the, uh, the Israeli Democratic Index issued a report several weeks ago it's called the Israeli Democratic Index for 2022. It shows that Israelis are becoming increasingly unhappy. According to the report, uh, they, it's an annual index as they've been rele releasing for about uh, 20 years already. And uh, the slightly less than half of Israelis are optimistic about the future of the country. Now, this represents a drop from 76% when they asked the same question 10 years ago. It's now 49%, a drop from 76%. Now, although there has been a rise in the public's uh, confidence in the institutions of the Israeli Defense Force and the presidency, the analysis found that between 2012 and 2022, the overall trust in Israel institutions dropped from a high of 61%, excuse me, 61% on the average to an unprecedented average low of 33%. Now, what is included in what the public is being asked about? They're asked about the police, the government, the Knesset, political parties, and the media. Public trust in the media is only 23% positive. Public trust in the Knesset, our parliament, is only 18%. And public trust in the political parties, all of them together, is 
The Supreme Court recorded the lowest approval rating since they began collecting information with only 42% of respondents expressing trust in the Supreme Court. Two decades ago, the average was almost 60%, and now it's down a little over 40%. Broken down according to political affiliation, only about 30% who identified as right-wing said they trusted the Supreme Court, compared to 80% of left-wing Israelis and 62% of the center. In other words, if you are right-wing, you have a lot less um, um, uh, trust in the Supreme Court than if you're left-wing. So it's especially pertinent to take a close look at this issue, considering the judicial reforms that the government uh, is is planning to make now. The Justice Minister, Yariv Levin, is attempting to bring up some laws in the next couple of weeks, which will limit the power of the courts. Now, the Prime Minister, Netanyahu, has repeatedly stated that the majority of the country supports the moves to diminish the authority of the Supreme Court. But there's rather a nuanced picture if we really look at it. The, the court in Israel in the last 25 years, take, take an, keep in mind that Israel does not have a constitution. And the court about 25 years ago under the particular Supreme Court justice, uh, the head of the Supreme Court, began to take upon itself a lot of power that you don't find the courts have in other countries. Now, some almost 60% of the people believe that the court should have the authority to overturn laws approved in the Knesset if they are found to be contrary to the principles of democracy. Now, almost the people who said this, about 40% were uh, right-wing, 70% were centrist, and 89 who labeled themselves as leftists. In other words, the further you are to the left, the more you trust the courts. The further you are to the right, the less you trust the courts. More than half of the Jews and almost three-fourths of the Arabs supported an ability of the court to overturn Knesset laws. Now, what these results reveal is that the issue of undertaking a judicial revolution, which the Netanyahu government uh, said is going to do, has really requires extensive debate and discussion and oversight from both from within the government and the Knesset and outside. Regarding other national institutions, who, who, who the, 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 the level of trust that the public has in these national institutions is pretty low, they have to rehabilitate their image. In other words, they have to make fundamental changes in how they operate. The lack of trust affects people in various ways, including diminishing the sense of belonging, and it also increases factionalism in society. It's interesting, by the way, 
But I personally think that the method of electing members of the Israeli Knesset is terrible. You cannot vote for an individual. You do not have an individual representative to to whom you can go. For example, years ago when I lived in the United States, I I lived in the state of Pennsylvania. The state had a number of congressmen, and I lived in a district of one of the congressmen. And when I had problems that could be resolved by the congressman, I went to his office because he knew that he depended upon my vote to retain his position in Congress, and therefore he was out to please me. That's the way it works. And indeed, my congressman uh, did several things for me that I needed. I wasn't asking for special privileges. One of them had to do uh, with my wife's um, uh, um, I, uh, American citizenship. My, my late wife was born in Europe, came to America, and she became a citizen here. And there was some kind of a problem, sort of a technical problem. I went to my congressman, and he resolved the problem for me. That is not something I can do in Israel because I do not have a local representative who, who depends on my vote. In Israel, you only vote for a party, and each party puts up a list, and according to the percentage of the vote they get, that's how many members they get in the Knesset. But I have no one who I can turn to as my personal representative. So the, the uh, so apparently now, the, there's a lack of trust uh, in uh, the in the Knesset in particular. Now, the president of Israel, uh, Yitzhak Herzog, uh, he, re- he received a report from the president uh, who of the organization the who made this um, did this public opinion survey, and the president said, "I'm therefore deeply worried about three points in the report presented to me." which are the erosion of solidarity in Israel, the weakening of the sense of belonging in the country, and decline in optimism about our condition. These are unpleasant figures which come on top of other sections of the report that reflect the internal tensions within the Israeli population. In other words, our cohesion is being weakened and we must do everything to rebuild it. Now, in other words, it, it, it's interesting. Thank heaven we have a strong army, and we don't feel necessarily uh, under danger as we did for many years if we don't take into account the Iranian nuclear bomb, which is a story unto itself. But when Israelis felt threatened, they stuck together more. Now we're going through a period of time, which is, thank heaven, the uh, uh, army and other uh, other agencies, the government are keeping us safe. People start uh, worrying about other things than safety, and they st- more divisions appear among the people. It's when you're under threat from outside that people get together. When the threat from outside isn't felt, People begin to fall apart, 
and it's an uphill battle. The uh, and the government's emphasis on judicial reform will not address most of the pressing issues exposed in this report. The the uh, judicial reform is important, but it's not something that most Israelis think about. They worry about their day-to-day life, and apparently um, there are signs that Israelis are not as happy as they used to be. So I just uh, give this information from these surveys over to the listeners, and let's see what happens in the future. I can't really comment on the results, just to say that Israelis uh, seem to be less happy than they were 10 years ago. And again, as I said a moment ago, I think one of the things that keep us uh, uh, getting along with each other is the outside threats. When you don't have an outside threat or you don't feel an outside threat, you tend to, uh, the family tends to uh, look at their own personal problems and not worry about the outside threat. And therefore, they start looking at other things uh, in their daily activities. I guess it's the same. In other words, let's put it this way. Israel is a big family. When you have trouble with the neighbors, the family sticks together. When you don't have trouble with the neighbors, the family doesn't stick together so well. And Israel is one big family, and that's what's happening to us. Now, I want to go to a different subject. And the subject is um, the the, uh, subject of dual loyalty. The Anti-Defamation League in the United States published a report claiming that the number of Americans who believe in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories has nearly doubled in the last couple of years. The the Anti-Defamation League did a survey, and and, uh, according to the survey, there is a substantially negative anti-Israel sentiment among Americans Uh, with findings revealing substantial belief in anti-Jewish claims, such as Jews being too powerful, too selfish, foreign, clannish. They took a poll of a representative example of more than 4,000 American adults, and they asked the extent to which Americans agree with different statements about uh, anti-Jewish comments, and found that 20% of Americans, which is like 66 million people, agreed with six or more of the 11 anti-Jewish sentiments used uh, in the survey. Among the findings, almost 40% of the respondents believe Jews are more loyal to Israel than to the U.S. 20% say Jews have too much power in the U.S. Almost 21% claim Jews don't care about anyone other than themselves. And 53% say Jews will go out of their way to hire other Jews. Now, think about this for a moment. If you're an American Jew, and essentially you now realize that four out of ten people you meet think that because you're Jewish, you're more loyal to Israel than to the United States. Think how many Jews work in the government, in Congress, cabinet members, and more. All of them are suspected of not being loyal to the United States. Now, that there is anti-Semitism certainly is not new. Um, the... Uh, but interesting, um, the question is, what what does this all mean? Uh, I'll give you an example. In December, the uh, 
the former president uh, met with uh, several people, one that one named Kanye West, and another name, the guy named Nick Nick Fuentes, who's a Holocaust denier. And Trump wrote on his social media platform, the Jewish leaders forgot that I was the best president for Israel. They should be ashamed of themselves. They lack loyalty to their greatest friends and allies, and is why large numbers in Congress and so many others have stopped giving support to Israel. Now, in Trump's reasoning, because he moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem and recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan, Jews owe him a sort of loyalty while he himself is elevating the worst types of anti-Semites and perpetuates the idea that Jews, Jewish leaders, are incredibly disloyal. Now, people, I mean, he did good things for Israel, there's no doubt about it. But when people go to the polls in the United States, they're not interested only in how the person they're voting for, uh, uh, what that, that person's attitude toward Israel is. When you go to the United States, you vote on a lot of issues. Israel being one of them, to many American Jews, Israel is not an issue. But to but what um, I think to the most American Jews, as I understand it, the attitude of a congressman or a republic representative toward Israel is important to them. But when they vote for a local congressman, they vote on his stand on a lot of issues, not just on Israel. The uh, the poll taken by the Anti-Defamation League shows that when anti-Semitism is talked about and when it's voiced by influential people, they spread. People believe them, they spread it more. It is impossible to know exactly how nearly 40% of Americans reach the decision that Jews are more loyal to Israel than to the United States, but it's safe to assume that some of them were influenced by Trump. Now, there is a strong uh, responsibility among leaders, political leaders in particular, to watch their words. Poisoning of the mind is what makes people take action. Uh, We have seen this. It requires responsible people to watch what they say and also for governments to invest in education to stop hate from growing. So, the... The point that I wanted to make was that the there is a rising uh, anti-Semitism in the United States, and something has to be done about it. And I think that the that something has to include action by elected members of Congress and other uh, national organizations or even state organizations to to combat this anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has been around for many, many years, and it takes a lot of forms. One of the forms it's taken over the last 70-some years, it's anti-Israel. People say, I don't dislike Jews, I don't like the government of Israel, or what Israel is doing. That's a, that's a, a guise. Uh, it's anti-Semitism in a different form. Anti-Semitism remains a danger, Right now, it's uh, increasing, apparently, particularly on campuses, and that's something that we have to worry about, and something that the American Jewish community has to do something about. There's nothing we can do 
here in Israel about the anti-Semitism in the United States. It's up to the American Jewish community and its leadership to, uh, to, to do things that will reduce this growing anti-Semitism in the United States. And uh, by the way, along the same lines, now that Jew hatred is at alarming rate on college campuses, Jewish students need school administrators to intervene on their behalf. It turns out that the uh, in one of the schools, in one of the big schools in the United States, the University of California at Berkeley, uh, at the School of Law, the uh, they're not doing anything about discrimination in Jews on the campus. The uh, in August, nine university-funded student groups adopted a bylaw that prohibits the groups from inviting Zionists and Israelis to speak. So the university published an op-ed in which the dean characterized the bylaw as an issue of free speech and, incorrect, and incorrectly applied First Amendment law to rationalize the school's continued funding of the groups that have adopted the bylaw not to invite Israelis or Jews. So. The point I wanted to make in this, in this uh, last section of the program was anti-Semitism remains a problem. It's an age-old problem. It remains so. One of the one of the new aspects of the problem in the last couple of years that it's seeping onto college campuses where the future leaders of America are being educated, and that is a real problem. I don't like to close on a negative note. But I'm trying to be as factual as possible. Until next time, Jay Shapiro signing off. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more.
You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.